the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to the Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer. I'm joined today by Rotographs editor Eno Saris. And today we'll be discussing the imminent return of a disappointing outfielder, a surprise demotion, and a couple of young starting pitchers. And before we start things off, I was actually kind of curious, because you do your chats on Thursdays, and I scrolled through it today, and I was wondering, in your chats, do you enjoy answering baseball questions or beer questions more? Uh, I like them both. You know, this at this point in the season, it just seems a little bit more like beer because um, beer graphs. I think that a lot of people's teams suck. <laughs> and also because of beer graphs, and they know that you are in love with beer and you like sharing that with the world. I mean, without right. beer graphs, maybe not everybody would know this. Well, the, today, today was a uh, got a little crazy. There was a. Uh, Basically, like eight million questions about Eric Hosmer. So, uh, really, it was either it was either er- the things we talked about today were either Eric Hosmer, uh, if if Major League, if the team in Major League could actually happen in the real Major League, <laughs> and uh, and then beer. So uh, that was what we did. And then there's pictures of cats. So that's all very important stuff. And, and Lucas Duda, of course. What is in Maximus or, or something that is obsessed with Lucas Duda? Yes, yeah. And now Maximus has like three other names where he tries to uh, come on as other people. And <laughs> I, I called him out on it today. I was actually, yeah, I know you're Maximus. Don't even uh, See, I, I finally learned that firsthand the one time I did a chat a couple of weeks ago. And he had to teach me what it was like to be you and, and get all of those pictures and all those references to Duda because I was a newbie. And so... <laughs> All right, so I love looking at the most searched for player on Fangraphs and, and bringing up the guys that are crazy, that we wonder what the heck they're doing here. And today is one of those days. Check out who the number one search for player is right now, Rami Lewis. Who the hell is Rami Lewis? He, oh, hasn't, pitched, he hasn't pitched since 2011, 23 career innings with a 723 ERA. Not one article on Fangraphs about him. And I was going to say, he just got called up, and that's uh, dated 2011. Yeah, I know. I had a look at that year as well. I'm like, oh, he was been called up by the Blue Jays, replacing Trevor Miller. Oh, wait, that was 2011. <laughs> that is weird. Rami Lewis, he, does, he actually has – he had a 399 Sierra in 2011. Sleeper pick, rebound <laughs> candidate. Where'd he go? Maybe he went to Japan or something. Yeah, I would bet Lefty. it. Yeah, he could have been a loogie. Yeah. I don't know. All right, but the real most interesting player alive that we're going to talk about today is none other than Joey Votto, who simply just walks too often to be a productive player. Don't you agree? Hey, you're cheating. (laughs) Joey Votto's like number six. Yeah, you know why? It's because it started out as, well, Mike Trout was number two, Max Scherzer was number three. We've talked way too much about them. And then it was uh, it was Brandon Phillips at one point, so I'm like, all right, we'll go with Brandon Phillips. And then Joey Votto jumped above Phillips. I'm like, yeah, I'd rather talk about Votto. Now it's Dustin Ackley who's number four, who also would be interesting to discuss. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the only reason yeah, Ackley's the one I, I I brought. I was I was surprised to see, and I and I wanted to bring up just because, you know, I someone was telling me that they uh, a scout that I that I trust was saying that, that he's keeping his head still at the plate. I don't know. That's that's an interesting tidbit. It could be nothing, and it, it's another thing that came up in my in my uh, chat today, which is are comments like that uh, from the players are they are they just noise? You know, are they Sounds actually n- are they actually not helpful because they're keeping us from seeing that? You know, for example, Dustin Ackley's just a bad player. <laughs> but I think in Dustin Ackley's defense, if you look at his his background, there are three hundred. There are seasons where he hit three hundred. Um, you know, he had double-digit walk rates. He had much better strikeout rates in the minor leagues. He's had better power in the minor leagues. He's had a little bit of speed. So there's still a guy in there that I think could hit like 270, maybe even 280, if he, you know, started reaching the upper ends of his power potential, uh, and could hit like 15 to 20 homers, steal five to 10 bases, and you know might play center field, which matters to some teams. So I do think there is some talent in Dustin Ackley that uh, we haven't, I don't think we've seen his best is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that my opinion of him has changed at all, really. I mean, he's basically doing exactly what he did last year. And, I mean, the home run per fly ball ratio is down uh, about half and at only 4.3%. That's kind of pathetic. But he's obviously been much better in August, though it hasn't really been any skills improvement. Still similar strike and walk rates. The only difference is an enormous... BABIP and better power. Now, the BABIP obviously is going to come back down to whatever it's going to end up at, but the increased power is good because he's somebody who we're not sure if he's just a 10 home one guy or maybe a future 20 home one guy. And that'll go a long way into determining if he's going to be worth anything in fantasy leagues in the future. Exactly, exactly. And if you look at his line, like one of the major things that's missing right now is the power. You know, he's under 100 ISO, and if that was 150, or, you know, he's shown 180 in AAA. So, you know, if you get that up above average, now you're talking 15-plus homers, you know, a few steals. Could be like a, you know, Chase Headley-type package, um, either at second or in center field. It's not – it's probably a uh, – it's probably just a, uh, you know, uh a deep league guy, but you know, I wanted to bring him up. I, I do think that Joey Votto. You know what's interesting to me about Joey Votto is just that, um, you know, some of the uh, hatred, like that, some of the the, the the will that's sent his way, I think is is almost like from a fantasy standpoint because you know there are probably people right now who are like, God, I wanted more than twenty home runs out of Joey Votto. Uh, because I think most of the people who read fan graphs and, and like advanced metrics, um, you know, look at him as one of the best hitters in the game. Yeah, well, it's funny because in our Tout Wars League, I own Votto, and he's, I mean, coming pretty close to what I expected and what I valued him at. But I'm in second place in runs scored. I probably could gain a point. I can't lose a point. I'm ahead in on-base percentage, partly because of Votto, of course. But I need home runs and RBIs, and he's been disappointing in those categories. So I'm one of those guys who, from a real baseball perspective, can appreciate how freaking awesome he is. But, Joey, please stop walking, expand your zone, hit home runs, and knock in runners. That's what I want from you also. Come on, Dusty Baker. Keep on convincing him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, 
But it, I mean, I isn't it outrageous how far we've come in understanding how runs score, and yet we still have this kind of stuff and this whole controversy about Joey Votto and does he walk too much? And even coming from his manager, isn't it crazy that this is still going on? I mean, look at this guy. He had a 474 on base percentage last year. That's like Bonzian. I mean, come on. That's crazy. And that's been done cleanly, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that uh, maybe maybe just like people think of him the wrong way. Maybe we should be thinking of him as the best two-hitter of all time. You know, maybe that'll, that'll, that would change things because, you know, these people expect these three, you know, thirty homers, hundred RBI. They're these these round numbers that people expect from from certain places places in the lineup. And um, you know, maybe you know, maybe there maybe there could be someone who swings more often and has a little bit more power than him that could you know that could do a better job in the four hole or three or whatever. You know, just in terms of driving people in. But I mean, he's an amazing hitter, and it takes a lot of discipline to do what he does. And, um, you know, I, I'm just appreciative. I think a lot of the problem is that many people feel that what lineup slot you hit in, it changes what your job is at the plate. And right. I think that's kind of ridiculous. To me, the job of any hitter is the exact same. It's get on base and basically accumulate as many bases per plate appearance as possible, as in you went on, want to get on base and obviously then come around and hit a home run every time. If you can't do that, hit a triple, hit, hit a double. Accumulate as many total bases as possible and get on base. That's every single hitter's job. It's not like the leadoff guy, is his job is to get on base and the, the, the cleanup guy is to, to knock in the runner. No, every hitter's job, get on base number one, and then once we know you're going to be getting on base – then get as many total bases as possible in that trip. So, in other words, maximize your on-base percentage and your slugging percentage. Very simple. That's what you have to do. And this is his path to doing that by walking more and hitting for slightly less power. That's his path, but it still ends up with the same goal, and he does it quite well. Yeah, I mean, you, you put it really well. I mean, the, 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 yeah, the, the goal is to not make outs and to, to collect bases. So. Yeah, yeah, you, you said even better. I mean, the number two guy is usually the guy that, oh, you know, put up a good at bat and see a lot of pitches, allow the leadoff guy to steal second, put the ball in play, move runners over. No, no, that's not the number two hitter's job. It's the same as the number one and the number three. Get on base and collect as many bases as possible, period. That's how a team scores runs. Yeah. So, I mean, it just boggles my mind how there's still questions about what a jo the job of hitters are. So, and, and the fact that Joey Votto is the victim here when he's clearly one of the best hitters in baseball is just nuts. So, you know, you actually interviewed Joey Votto earlier in the season, and his power was down early in the season, and there was wonder about if it was his knee that was bothering him. So, I mean, his power is down this year. He's hitting fewer fly balls, and his line drive rate is still as amazing as ever. What is he now? Is he now just like a 20 to 25 home run guy, or do you think there's still a 30 home run season in him? I mean, if you look at his history, it, it's mostly been 20 to 25. So, I mean, that's I kind of think of him as, as, a, as a guy who 
you know, it's really hard if you look at if, if the guys who you think have good batting averages and you look at their career, it's really hard to get a guy that you can almost just like write in a 300 batting average. You know, that's it's pretty hard to do because most of the time it takes a good BABIP. And for what we know about BABIP is that it, there's a lot of noise in there and there's a lot of oscillation. But Votto has shown that he's going to consistently have a great BABIP. He has a great approach in order to have a great BABIP. That was part of what that interview was about. And so I think you can pretty much pencil him in for a three batting average every year. So there's a lot of value in the consistency of batting average um, and, you know, the fact that you'll get 25 homers and you'll get great runs total. So, you know, there, there's a lot of value in consistency, even though the entire package, even at his position at first base, I think, uh, comes up light in some places. Yeah, and he has basically a picture-perfect batted ball distribution. If you're looking for what leads to a high BABIP, look no further than Joey Votto. Since 2010, he's popped up three times. Three times in four years. How insane is that? Like, you would think that it would happen more often just out of – by accident. I mean, I, I just can't even understand how that's possible. How is that physically possible that he only has three pop-ups in four years? But he does it. He hits a ton of line drives. He hits more ground balls than fly balls. He's not a zero in terms of speed. He goes the opposite field. He does every single thing that you'll possibly hope for that would lead to a high BABIP. And that's why his career BABIP is 361, and it's not a fluke. I mean, this is him. All right, let's move along to Los Angeles where Matt Kemp is – expected to return for like the 15th time this year how many times has he missed games been on the dl and then we're looking forward to his return and then up oh, a week later he's back on the dl way more often than i can possibly count so he's expected to begin his rehab today play at least three games and probably come back soon after but what goes on now in the dodgers outfield situation andre ethier is hit better uh they obviously still have crawford and puig so they have four legit starting outfielders and only three spots to play them. What happens here? Well, I mean, at least one-third of the time, um, it, I think it's, it's obviously going to be the Ethier that sits against lefties. It's, you know, he's, even in his better years, he's not that good against lefties. So um, I think that, that makes it easy one-third of the time. I, you know, I do wonder who sits when they're facing a righty and everyone's healthy, um, which right now is kind of the first time it's happened all year. Um, you know, they don't have a place at first base, um, you know, and if they're not playing in an AL park, uh, what are they going to do? Uh, I, I have to think that it's going to be easier that sits more often than not. Um, but they'll take advantage of the DH as much as they can. They'll give Kemp, you know, mental health days. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I, you're not going to see easier at second. Yeah, <laughs> like Mark Reynolds playing second base for the Yankees. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. I, I have to also believe that Carl Crawford is also going to get some days off, and that's going to really hurt his fantasy value. Uh, yeah, Kemp, with all his injuries this year, you have to assume that he's going to get some days of rest. And then Puig, with all of his mental errors and his just bad baseball play not at the plate, he might just as punishment get some days off. Um, but do you expect Kemp to actually – earn value i mean now he's coming off an ankle injury and he actually was stealing bases this year while he was healthy but we don't know if that's gonna still happen given all his injuries his power never really recovered and so you don't know if all this time off he's strengthened his shoulder more 
So what are you actually expecting from Kemp at the plate while he still actually remains on the field? You know, my, you know, the number one, uh, number one doctor's recommendation, uh, totally unscientific. I do actually think that there's a possibility that his shoulder did heal some while he was on the DL for the ankle. Um, you know, the only thing that makes these things better is rest and rehab. And, you know, I'm sure he was resting and rehabbing both parts of his body. Um, you know, he stole nine bases in, you know, less than half a season of uh, play. So even stealing more wasn't uh, wasn't that there. He didn't steal that much more. Um, he's not going to be super useful for his legs. So basically what I'm saying is I think that he – Hopefully he got his power together, and that's how he's going to be more useful. Yeah, and of course we just never know because I think injuries are still the last frontier. We don't know how players are affected by injuries and, and when they're healthy enough that their pre-injury performance is going to return. And, and that's one of the frustrating things about fantasy is that you don't know. And so this is probably going to be a hard question to answer. But looking forward to next year, how do you project and value Matt Kemp? I mean, do you blindly say that whatever he goes for, he's likely going to be undervalued? Or is he somebody whose name is still big, most are going to expect some sort of a rebound, and given all his injuries, we just don't know how he's going to perform, so it would be better to stay away? Because I, I don't even have an answer for you, and I'm curious if you have some sort of an answer. Yeah, you know, that came up in the chat today, and it, it specifically someone was asking where, where Kemp and Braun fit. And, um, you know, I gave a general answer in the chat, which was just that I wouldn't put them any earlier than the back end of the first round just because Oh, absolutely. You know, the first round is about avoiding risk, and, and those guys obviously have inherent risk. Uh, but I would still put Braun ahead of Kemp uh, just because I like, you know, Braun's strikeout and walk rates, and I like uh, his power. I just like the way that he's gotten to his numbers better than I like the way Matt Kemp has gotten to his. Because if you look at Matt Kemp's it's actually been bad a lot of years. Uh, there's only been one year where it's been, you know, within one percentage point of, of league average. And uh, there's been plenty of years where it's been really bad. So I feel like, you know, as he gets older, the strikeout rate's going to get worse and he won't have the speed. Um, and, then, you know, some years he doesn't have the line drive rate and his, and his batting average on balls and plays is like more regular. And then all of a sudden he's hitting 249 like he did in 2010. So I think as his career, you know, goes into the post peak phase, we're going to see some seasons that look a little bit like Josh Hamilton's, um, you know, where he doesn't have a ton of, he doesn't have a ton of homers, doesn't have a ton, you know, like has very few steals anymore. And then, ha and then throws a bad batting average on top of it. So uh, I'm a little worried about him long term, and if he rebounded this year and then you know started off well next year, and he was on a dynasty team of mine, I would definitely consider trading him. Yeah, I mean, I would take Braun as well over Kemp, just because Braun doesn't have to deal with the injury concerns that Kemp is coming off of. Of course, he has his own concerns. He has off the meds concerns, and so we don't know exactly how he's going to be affected. But I would have to assume that that's less of an issue than Kemp coming off of all the injuries during the season and the serious shoulder surgery. So you just don't know if a player is ever going to be the same as he. I mean, look at Adrian Gonzalez. He came off of major shoulder surgery. His power has not been the same since. And, and this type of stuff happens. And so you just don't know if that's what's going to happen to Matt Kemp, if he's ever going to be 
I mean, he only had one year where he hit more than 30 home runs, so we don't even know if that was his true talent level to begin with. But we don't know if Matt Kemp is going to be a, a 25 to 30 home run guy again, or if he's now a 15 to 20 home run guy with his leg injuries, he's getting older. Is he a 30 steal guy or is he a 15 to 20 steal guy? We don't know. So I think there's more questions there than with Braun because we, I mean, you, you can't assume that Braun's powers is going to be cut in half. I, I still think he's going to be a at least a 25 home run guy, given a full healthy season. And I, we still have to wonder if he's going to see a rebound in steals next year, just like with Braun, but uh, just like with Kemp. But I think there are fewer question marks with Braun than Kemp. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I actually, you know, I've revived, I, I, you know, the, the brass taxes, where, where would you feel comfortable taking Braun? I think, I, think, uh, I think around the turn, I would start thinking about it. Yeah. Because think- there you have the chance at a, at a guy who might be, Top, you know, top three. You're getting him at the end. You get the, you get, especially if it's a snake draft, you get the the added insurance of a higher second round pick to sort of help you. You know, you could go. <clears throat> I don't know what you could do. I mean, I I'd have to really look at a board, but you, you could do a safer pick for your second pick and and go for broke with Braun in the first. Yeah, I definitely think just given how consistent he's been the last couple of years, he's basically been a out a top three pick so I think dropping him toward the end of the first round I think also gives you enough upside to make it a profitable pick which you don't normally see from the end of the first round but also hedges your risk a bit in case he does see some sort of a, a post-steroid drop-off but I think I really think that's going to be overrated I don't think we're going to see that much of a performance difference because it seems like anecdotally the guys that we thought were on steroids and no longer didn't really take a hit performance-wise and, I mean, the thing is, is we just know so little about when they started, when they ended, what kind of an effect it has. But I don't – I can't name any guys that we know came off steroids and then really lost a, a big chunk of their performance. So I'm not really seriously concerned about Broy next year. And so I think he would make a good pick at the end of the first rounds. All right, so we talked about Taiwan Walker at a previous podcast, and we speculated, or there was speculation that he would be called up Friday versus Houston, and now it's been official. He has been called up, and he will make his major league debut tomorrow. And uh, I know you've been uh, getting questions about his innings limit, how many starts, how many innings. So, what exactly are you hearing now about what Walker has left this season? I keep hearing the number 15, uh, 15 innings. So uh, two to three starts, two two three starts, yeah, and those could be really good. I mean, if you look at the matchups, the matchups are nice. Um, I think it's Houston twice. Wow. Uh, that- so that's really exciting. But in terms of it's it's almost you have to just think of him as a spot starter because there's no there's there's nothing after those two three starts, you know. So it's like you can't you can't drop a guy that you might want four starts from now. In order to take him, you know what I mean. It's like you, so if you, you have like a designated streaming slot on your roster, even in a twelve-team mix league. I, I think he's worthy of consideration in a shallower twelve-team mix. If you have a streaming slot, maybe like a daily uh, transactions league, I think he's worth uh, considering. But obviously, somebody that you're counting on for a full month's worth of starts, and you know, normally that would be about five six starts of the rest of the year, then obviously they're not somebody that you should be dropping for Taiwan Walker. Yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, there's a, there's a sunset date on him. Uh, and, and then 
you know, that aside, there are questions. I mean, I don't know. We talked about it a little bit. There's, you know, he had two different curveballs, and it's unclear to me which curveball he's using right now. And, and there's some some uh, question about his control. So, um, you know, it's not a guarantee. And, 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 you know, even Houston's been better over the last 30 days. If you look at, um, you know, real baseball stats in terms of, like, Waba and stuff, they, they've been better over the last month. And I think that's probably because they've finally found a combination of players that don't suck as bad as the combination of players that tried earlier. I mean, they, they've been really cycling through outfielders, and, you know, we made jokes about it before. But, uh, you know, Grossman finally looks like he's a major leaguer, and it looks like they've got, you know, replacement-level guys at least in most of the positions. So, All right, let's talk about another young pitcher who is or has returned from Tommy John surgery, and that's Danny Duffy. In Kansas City, and he's coming off an excellent start. And right now, he has a 110 ERA over three starts, but more importantly, 17 strikeouts and 16 in the third innings, only five walks. And uh, his velocity is down a bit from last year, but that's, I think, primarily because last year he saw a big spike. And, and so now his velocity is right in line with 2011. So I mean, this is not normally what we'd expect from guys returning from Tommy John surgery, and I have notoriously been against that. I, I, I said how pessimistic I was on Brandon Beachy. I was right about that. But Danny Duffy, so far, looking good. Do you expect him to continue having value next year, and what are your expectations in 2014? I must play in a lot of deep leagues because, uh, or leagues with a lot of a lot of DL slots because I bought a lot of shares of Duffy and Beachy and. Lubke and a bunch of these different guys coming back and I didn't you know spend a lot I definitely these were last round picks and stuff but um, you know I didn't actually think that Duffy would be you know one of the better looking um, players that I bought into on with this strategy and um, I actually I'm actually pretty happy about him you know if you look back at his he's never had great control but there have been years when he's had better control and if you also look at his peripherals, uh, his walk rate peripherals, for the last two years, we had terrible control. He had terrible first strike um, percentages. And now, you know, it's, it's definitely a small sample, but at least for now, he's got an above average first, um, first strike percentage. And he's always had the ability to make people swing and miss. And I think, I think a, a good walk rate can be as simple as getting strike one and then getting them to miss on everything after that. So um, I do think that he has... We know that he has good swing and strike ability. We know he has good stuff. The changeup is great. The fastball is great. Even at 93, the fastball is great. So I, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. I think I would pick him up um, in that same streamer spot if Walker's gone. Uh, deep leaguers, he should all be. He should be gone by now. Dynasties, he should be gone by now. Um, there's definitely something to like there. Yeah, I was a big fan last year. I remember in spring training, and you know we always talk about ignoring spring training, but there are some things that you could look at and, and take some valuable insight from. And last year he introduced, I think it was a cutter. And I don't know, the pitch effects doesn't, yeah, a very low percentage of cutters. Basically he introduced a pitch and it looked great. There were articles about it. His strikeout to walk ratio in the spring was fantastic. And so there was some nice uh, sleeper buzz going on. And uh, he started off the season 390 ERA, but, you know, mediocre peripherals. But then, of course, he went down and needed the Tommy John surgery. So, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, was a top prospect and before the injury was somebody to really keep an eye on. But 
This year, I don't know. I'm still a bit cautious about him just because he hasn't had good control in the past, and that's not something I can bank on continuing coming back from the TJ. I mean, look at that zone percentage. It's odd because he's throwing a ton of first-pitch strikes, and if you look at the zone percentage, it seems like that's like the only strike he throws the entire at-bat because that zone percentage is pretty damn low. But, I mean, it's better than the flip side. He used to throw a lot of pitches in the zone except for strike one. <laughs> yeah, that was a good point. So I would rather get you get strike one over and then live on the edges until they strike themselves out. So uh, that's true. I mean, he I, has, you know, and, and I'd rather just I'd rather bank on stuff. I, I, you know, you can get into trouble that way. But there, are, you know, you, you look at sort of like a Kevin Slowey type uh, versus a Danny Duffy type. Kevin Slowey had great control. Kevin Slowey had a, a pretty good strikeout minus walk percentage when he was coming up. But Kevin Slowey didn't never really had good stuff. And, you know, you could really tell that. And. I don't know what role the injury had and stuff, but I'd rather start with Danny Duffy and find Kevin Slowey if Danny Duffy doesn't work out than start with Kevin Slowey and then find out that Danny Duffy's off the waiver wire by the time I want him. You know what I mean? I'd rather yeah. start with stuff and then and hope that they can refine it. He's also been a fly ball pitcher throughout his career. He kind of reminds me of a Jonathan Sanchez and Oliver Perez, which isn't doesn't sound like that's such a great thing to be the next Oliver Perez, but you have to remember that Oliver Perez, when he was uh, younger, he, he used to be an exciting prospect. He did have some really good years, he, and this is when he threw in the mid-90s. And, and so this is what Duffy might be. I mean, a guy who's going to struggle with his control, has very good strikeout rates, but is a fly ball pitcher. But that's the type of skill package that he could put together some very valuable fantasy seasons. And I think next year he will be a pretty decent sleeper, depending on how he finishes the season and, and how – uh, much it increases his cost next year. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, I think it's really important to just consider age. I think a lot of times when you're looking at guys, I mean, like I was talking with Kemp, you know, the, the more the, the the higher that age number goes, the more you worry about those strikeouts. Um, and uh, I think probably with Danny Duffy, the the higher the age goes, the more you worry about those walks on the back end. So you know, once he starts getting to thirty, you have to start remembering. You know, let's say he turns into a guy that walks three and a half for nine next year, and that would make him pretty much an ace, I think. You know, because he'd be striking out nine, walking three and a half. Uh, he, you know, if he kept the homer rate down, he'd, he'd probably look like a really good pitcher. That would be good for a couple of years, two, three, four, five years. Might be great in his peak, but then you have to remember what the beginning of his career looked like, and that there's always the risk that once the stuff erodes a little bit, the walk rate comes back. I think that's what happened basically with Oliver Press. Right. This is true. Uh, all right. I, I really want to talk about your Nick Swisher interview and primarily because I loved his quotes and I would have loved to be there. And this this was the winner for me. I'm not a needle guy, bro. I don't like surgeries. I LOL'd reading that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like wondering how I was going to chop that up. And then I was like, you know what? This is just so Swisher. I think I should just I think I should just put it out there. I will say. You know, being there, it was, uh, it didn't, it, it felt a little, it was unsettling. I, I wasn't sure it was completely sincere. It was very, you know, he's got that Cheshire Cat uh, grin that he does. He's, it's very, it almost seemed like a show. And he, he, made a, a he made a big, huh? He's a character. It's a character. And I, but it, he's a character, but it also seemed like it's a character. Like, he, he like got into character for the interview. And uh, so I had to leave those bros in there. And you, you could see the one-liners, you know, just wanted to get hits, bro. And, 
uh, and you know, you know, my wife tells me, you know, they were they were these just like these little like one-liners where he was kind of smiling as he was saying them, and he like did the big smile at the end. And I mean, it's almost like he he's done TV before, and so he knows how to he knows how to work a room kind of thing. Uh, but it, it was kind of unsettling in the moment, and I and uh, at times I sort of forgot where the interview was going. So that that one, I just asked that question, and he talked for like five minutes straight, and I was like, okay, I think we're done almost. <laughs> <laughs> but the weird thing about Swisher is that. It was interesting going through his shoulder injury and how he, he's changed his swing. And yet if you look at his batted ball distance, it's like identical to last year and, and really good uh, in absolute terms versus the rest of the league. 295 feet is excellent, yet his isolated slugging is the lowest rate of his career. His home run per fly ball rate is at its lowest rate since 2007. So it doesn't really jive. I mean, you look at the distance and you're like, oh, he's hitting it just as far as he always has. So his power is there, but he's just not getting the results. Yeah, there's a couple things going on. I mean, I think that his batted ball distribution was surprisingly bottled-like for me. I mean, his he's really uh, you know cut the uh, infield fly balls down. He's now starting to go oppo more often. He's not pulling that much. He's going to all fields. He's you know cutting his strikeout rate from last year at least. So there was some some parts you know could mean that even though his batted right now is 291, I think he could actually be a little bit unlucky like that. He might be a true talent, 310 or something like that kind of guy. Um, and it's it, you can't use his career Babbitt because he's really changed the way that he approaches. It looks like he's changed the, his plate approach um, over the last three, four years from early in his career. So, um, you know, early in his career, he had 240 Babbitts, 270, 280, and that's keeping his whole career down. Last four years, 335, 295, 324. That's where I think he is true talent-wise. So his 291 is the lowest. Of course, the injury has something to do with it. And I think, you know, he's he's got fewer homers because, you know, pull means homers. And, and so, therefore, you know, he's, he's he lost a couple homers by not pulling the inside pitch um, as much as he used to. Um, so that's where some of the ISO has gone, where some of the, the homers have gone, and some of the batting average, I guess. But, um, you know, I think this package could be more reliable at a 260, 270, 280 kind of batting average. He'll still probably get you know, his 20 homers a year. So I actually think it's a good approach for him as his career winds down. Yeah, and if you plot his fly ball rates on a graph, I mean, it's essentially uh, every year it's been a decline. And so he has basically uh, transitioned into a vital light. Uh, line drives, avoiding the pop-up, and uh, hitting more ground balls than fly balls, which usually would lead to a higher than 291 BABIP. And the interesting thing is that we don't really – think of injuries changing swings, but that, this is what happened. I mean, if you remember Adrian Gonzalez in his first year in Boston, he was coming off of that shoulder surgery that sapped his power. And all of a sudden, this is a guy who used to basically hit 40% fly balls each year. He was down at 32% uh, that year. The next year he hit more, and now it's he's back this year, he's back to a normal rate. So it took him two years to get back to a normal rate of fly balls. And, and so that's something that we probably miss often of how injuries, especially shoulder injuries, can change the swing plane and swing mechanics. Yeah, and usually usually for the worse. And, and you know, some people might argue it is for the worse. Uh, to, to, for, for a guy like him who strikes out 22% of the time versus Votto is a little bit lower, you know, maybe he should be a little bit more of a power hitter, power and patience guy. It's worked for him over his career. Um, but if it's not there, it's not there. I mean, he if, if his shoulder, he, he sounds like he you know tore his labrum or his rotocuff a little bit. So 
Um, I don't think that um, necessarily the power is there for him. So, um, you know, I, I think that he's doing the best he can with what he's doing. With and, and, you know, that's something that I've been learning this year is that, you know, there's this daily battle for these guys when they go out there. And we look at these things in some, and we and we and we look at it from a number standpoint, and we try to say that these, you know, this is luck and that's not, and this is whatever. But you know, when they go out there, they're for the most part getting on the field and being like, okay, what feels good today? What hurts today? What can I throw? What can I not throw? What can I swing at? What can I not swing at? And so, um, you know, it's uh, they see the game very differently than we do, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, in this case, it was it was it might be a thing that might help him out in the future, even though it's, it's born of an injury. Yeah, this is true, and it's probably going to make Swisher uh, a bit undervalued next year. I mean, he's never been a real sexy pick, and but I mean now he can be even cheaper, and uh, especially in on base percentage leagues, and Swisher should have uh, some good profit potential next year. All right, let's move along to a guy that we've talked about, and I was so excited to get Danny Salazar in Tower Wars and in Labor, and he's thrown a total of 13 and a third innings over his last three starts. I mean, they are really treating him with kid gloves. Four innings last start, five and a third the start before that, and four innings before that. I mean, this is usually what would happen. You would see when a guy totally implodes and, and gives up 15 runs in those innings, but his ERAs are a reasonable 405 over that time. So they are really, really treating him with kid gloves. And it seems like with Corey Kluber returning within the next, let's say, week or two, it's possible that Salazar will no longer have a rotation spot and my fab money was completely wasted. I mean, is that what you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, he's already at 150% of the innings he threw last year. So he, he threw a little bit over 80 last year, and he's over 120 this year. Um, so uh, I think that they saw that. And I think that, you know, in another in any other type of year, they would basically be um, sitting him right now, that he'd be done. So I think that they're, the way that they tried to do it was just stretch him out by, you know, we'll give him 60 to 70 pitches per game. That's sort of where he's been sitting at his pitch count. Uh, and that's why he doesn't get out of the fourth because I do from watching him I do think that he's going to be he's going to be a little bit of a high pitch count guy. He he definitely goes for the strikeout, which means that he's throwing extra pitches that are outside of the zone to set up other pitches. And it's it's not going to be a high efficiency guy. And I don't think he's going to be necessarily a great ground ball guy. I wrote his piece today on getting blanked about how changeups often are either whiff pitches or ground ball pitches, and I think that his changeup is basically a whiff pitch. Oh, and can I make a plea? I, I read the comments there, and I think it would be a great idea to move that to the Rotographs blog. <laughs> well, it was my last It was my last day over there, so, uh, so uh, yeah, that'll be definitely happening. And, and, you know, to be honest, it's the type of stuff you do all the time. It's the type of stuff that Zimmerman does. I mean, we, we, at Rotographs, we do it all the time. We basically look around at the research that's out there, and then we, we apply it to fantasy. So, you know, for me, it was just kind of trying to show a different audience the, the kind of stuff that we do at Rotographs. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it'll be that much news to, uh, to, the, to our readers. But today, you know, it was an interesting piece just because uh, Harry Papalides found some stuff about change-ups. And he basically, you know, one of the things that I thought found most interesting is, you know, I talked to A.J. Burnett recently, and he said, you know, I'm not throwing my changeup because it doesn't have 10 miles an hour difference. But when we've done research into changeups, we've found that it does. The 10 miles an hour difference doesn't mean that the changeup is good. 
So um, what Harry did was he found that some changeups go for whiffs and some changeups go for, for ground balls. The changeups that go for whiffs need to have the most separation in terms of velocity because basically you want that guy out on the front foot and you want them to, um, to really you know, be geared up for your fastball and miss your changeup. So the changeups that go for whiffs, you want really big separation in velocity between the, between the, the fastball and the changeup. So that, that is true. Yeah, and you know what? That was really interesting to read. And, and all I can think of when I read this type of stuff is that we're not far away from looking strictly at a pitcher's repertoire and projecting strikeout walk and ground ball rates from that. I think so because, I mean, we know – we know the average uh, walk rates for different pitches. You know, we know, for example, like that split fingers have ter- terrible strike rates because it's really hard to throw a split finger for 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 a strike. So, um, you know, if if a guy you know has you know throws this many split fingers and then his changeup has this much dart dart and dive and this, yeah, I think it's definitely possible. And I and I would love to do more stuff trying to relate the pitch FX information that we have to uh, related outcomes. I definitely am definitely interested in that sort of thing. So, so you know, the, the other side was there are things, such a thing as a hard changeup, um, which, you know, has less separation in terms of velocity, um, but gets ground balls. And that's probably because it's just, it's more like a, a slider is to a fastball where it's just slightly different than a, than a fastball. So they, they gear up for it and they make contact, but because it's not a fastball and they thought it was a fastball, they, they ground it. So um, there's two different ways to approach it. And so you have to kind of think about what kind of a changeup is this. So getting back to Danny Salazar, he's at 120 innings pitched this year, which it seems like next year, assuming that he wins a rotation spot, that he would be, you know, 150 innings, 160 innings tops, which is going to really make it difficult for him to be a top sleeper. I, I can guarantee he's going to be listed as a sleeper everywhere. But when you know you're only going to get 150, 160 innings, I mean, that's – I think that was a downside to my Andrew Kashner love is that we knew he was only going to get 150 or 160 innings. So it's really hard to earn a whole lot of value when your innings are capped like that. But, I mean, in those innings, I'm still a huge fan. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I dumped a lot of money on Jose Fernandez this year uh, in tout, and, I, and I, knew, I knew that there was a sunset date on that, but uh, – 160 innings. I think it's like a, a little bit difference between roto and head to head. And head to head, you kind of need the guy to be around at the end of the season, um, because it, you know even if he got you there, that that's somebody that you start to depend on during the season. And then if he's not there anymore, you know you're kind of screwed. But you know in roto, which is kind of my preferred format, uh, 160 innings is 160 innings is is going to look pretty sweet next year, I think. Yeah, especially if you have a deep bench and then you pair him with another decent pitcher or, or some breakout guy. I mean, if we're looking at the value in the slot, then you're fine. But the value assigned just to Salazar, obviously it'll be capped because his strikeouts and his wa- uh, and his home run and his wins are, there's going to be a ceiling there just based on the innings and that, that's going to reduce his value. But still, I mean, he's looking like a prime sleeper for next year. Yeah. All right, well, that's a wrap for us today. So join us again on Sunday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Eno Saris, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.